meaningless thought The shell appears strong But the inside is right It's time to be stirred The time is now The winds have changed Read the signs No time to hide The winds have changed Millennia ago from the little cave on the tiny island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, the heavens opened. Since then, the world has been fascinated by the cosmic upheaval brewing on the horizon of history. The upheaval is now upon us. It is within us. To some degree, it always has been. But there has been a sudden and violent shift in the affairs of the world. The winds have changed. Heaven will not be silent. Let's now join Father Anthony Bush, pastor of St. Stanislaus Koska, the Sanctuary of the Divine Mercy in Chicago, and author of A Mother's Plea, For the Winds Have Changed. Together we can pave the way for a hopeful response to the signs of our times. Good afternoon, listeners. This is Loretta Fralick, and I am filling in today for Father Anthony. And as you usually hear the opening of this program, uh, today... Mary is not with us. Mary Fiorito is off today. And so Nick and I are going to try not to break the show. And we are going to have an exciting guest today. I always love when we talk to uh, Dr. Michael New because he gives us such great hope with the statistics that are being evaluated out there on pro-life issues. And so we're going to talk to him. But first... I want to tell you, happy President's Day. And uh, just uh, uh, I know that today, before it became a day of sales, and you can always get that TV or those mattresses. For some reason, there's so many mattress sales um, to celebrate President's Day. But before 1970, it used to be a day where we celebrated George Washington. And um, so many of the biographies that I have read in recent years talk about what an incredible man of prayer George Washington was and that he attributed the victory on the battlefield in so many incidences to the divine hand of God. And so I really urge our listeners to pick up, and I, I wish I could recall the books that I had read, but there was an interesting story in one of them, and that is that he was a good friend or became a good friend through the war years, um, and as the play Hamilton shows, with uh, Lafayette, the French uh, leader of revolutionary forces. He became a good friend of Lafayette, but I don't know if you know that uh, Lafayette gave George Washington a small little enamel, which is just a painting on porcelain, very small, of the Blessed Mother. And that uh, George is home on his bedstand in Mount Vernon until a first lady from an administration, I won't recall, moved it and removed it. Um, but that was a gift from Lafayette and George had a little image of the Blessed Mother there on his nightstand. So we want to say thank you, George Washington, for listening to the Lord and all the gifts you gave our nation. Um, it was also celebrated uh, federally, um, was uh, Lincoln's birthday, and we all know the tremendous gifts Lincoln has given our nation. But in 1970, for whatever reason, it became President's Day. So not only do George uh, Washington and Abraham Lincoln get celebrated, but uh, all the presidents that have—it's the President's Day now. It's no longer honoring those two individuals. So just some fun facts for you to learn and know. We also start Lent this weekend— we are going to be heading into Ash Wednesday. Lent begins that 40-day liturgical season of Lent. Lent is a time when uh, we do lots of good things in order to get closer to the Lord and to put our lives in greater order and make more room for God. And uh, on Wednesday of this week... 
People will come to church. Some will celebrate with a mass, some just with a service. It is not a holy day of obligation. I didn't learn that till I was an adult. But it's not a holy day of obligation, but there's no reason why you can't make it a time to come to Mass with the Lord. Um, but uh, people attend Ash, more Ash Wednesday Masses and celebrations than uh, nearly all the other feast days. So we want to return to God. We want to be united with our communities and other members of the body We want to acknowledge our sinfulness, and we want to receive God's tremendous mercy for us. So um, it's always nice when you see all those people out there with their crosses on their forehead. Remember, man, that thou art dust, and unto dust you shall return. We came in with nothing. We're going out with nothing. So give it away while you can. Uh, And that is one of the things that we do prayerfully. We give alms to the poor. And uh, it's not just, you know, the money that you put in the rice bowl. It's the cleaning out of the closet and getting those items you no longer need or use and give them to the poor that they may be useful to them. I know those very words make my mother extremely, extremely happy. So uh, another, another thing to think about, another item to think about in the way we live out our Lent is our prayer life. And, uh, you know, Mary and I will be talking more about it as Lent continues to uh, move along towards Easter. But, you know, think about it. You have friends, right? And they're people that you want to hang around with. They're people that want to hang around with you. So you, you meet for coffee Uh, You meet for that power walk. Uh, You get together for family events. Uh, All of those people in your life you want to be with. Well, God feels the same way about you. He is your family. And he has created you to love him with a purpose and a plan that only you have. And you're never going to know that purpose unless you hang out with the boss in prayer you know, and it's it's a simple, tell him how you're doing. Tell him what you you're, you need. Tell him, you know, what, uh, what would help you. And then sit and listen and see what God says. And maybe that's what you can make as your, as your gift for Lent. You know, you don't have to give up chocolate. Um, I've given up chocolate. I've given up red meat. Um, both were very trying Lents for me. <laughs> But you don't have to give something up as much as you can give up of your time to God. And um, St. Teresa of Avila used to say, you know, do not, you know, we all start out fresh and we want to, we want to do it for an hour and we're going to, we're gone ho and we've got our Bible and even our, you know, our cup of coffee and our journal and our favorite pen and we're sitting there. And we say we're going to do this for an hour. Well, St. Teresa reminds us, and it's St. Teresa of Avila, she reminds us that it won't take but two nanoseconds for the devil to get inside that hour and distract you. So she recommends that we start small. Start with 15 minutes. And so I really want to challenge our listeners today to give the Lord 15 fresh new minutes that you have yet to use up on that day. And don't squeeze them in, schedule them in. Make it a plan to sit down with the Lord and you talk to him. But when you have coffee with your friend, you don't just talk. You got to let your friend talk and you got to listen. So I would really challenge our listeners, um, 15 minutes and, uh, I would really would would guess that your day will be changed by the time Lent is over. So give it a thought. It's one you can read all about our obligations, you know, of fasting and and really fasting is important. Fasting, fasting, my mother says, breaks the back of the devil. If you ever want to ask the Lord for something, uh, I would strongly recommend, even outside the, the parameters of Lent, you go ahead and fast and just say, I am going to be in charge of my body. 
I am going to be in charge of what I take in, and I'm not going to succumb to that, you know, extra helping. I'm not going to succumb to, I have to have meat every day. So give it a shot and see how it works. It's not something that has to happen for the rest of your life. Just try. The other um, that we want to look at is... um, that remembering the grace of Lent gives us a chance to fulfill the question in Psalm 116, how can I repay the Lord for all the great good done for me? And, And that's really what we want to acknowledge. The Lord is so good to us. He is so good to us. He is so faithful. He is so filled with goodness that he wants to pour out on us. He never forgets us. We are always on his mind. He is the God who sees, Jehovah El Roy. Nothing gets past God. And he loves us so much, and he wants us to be a part of his purpose and plan and not just our own. So for Lent, there are those kinds of exciting things opportunities to pray. And we also want to remember to pray for people. Right now, we have our brothers and sisters that are moving forward in the right of Christian initiation of adults and the right of election. So every year at the Easter Vigil, and uh, that's on the Saturday night before Easter at that beautiful liturgy, Um, Don't be deterred by the time it takes, but uh, at that beautiful liturgy, we celebrate um, men, women, and children coming into the Catholic faith. And I know that that it sounds kind of coming into the Catholic faith. I find it so joyful. Remember, with all our foibles, all of our sin, all of our problems— These men and women and children are choosing to be part of us. And that sacramental grace that comes down is absolutely, you know, unimaginable. And if you've ever been part of our CIA, either as part of the training team or part of uh, a sponsor for someone, it's, it's, there's no greater privilege. There is no greater privilege to walk alongside of someone who is seeking to find out more about the Lord through the beauty of the Catholic faith. So we want to pray for the RCIA. We want to pray for the right of election. We want to pray for um, all of those teams that are working on the parish level. We want to pray for all of those sponsors. You have a great privilege, and you represent each one of us in the faith as you accompany these men and women and children. And so I, I just really ask for your prayers for them that they, you know, Lent, it can be a, a stretch, but, you know, this is the home stretch for them. And there's, you know, again, so much surrounding Easter. You know, you could be pretty tired. So we want to pray for extra Holy Spirit to come down on them, the anointing to fall, and that they just would be blessed as they are going through the final preparation for these soon-to-be Catholics and some even soon-to-be Christians. Um, And that they uh, just—that this process known as RCIA um, spread throughout the world and that many come into our church— it, it, uh, it it's really it was an honor in the years that I worked in RCIA and the opportunity to be part of those liturgies, and so these are people that need your prayer and your help. And I have one more person that I would just like you to pray for. Um, as you know, I am a former prosecutor and took the bar exam in order to get my license. Well. I was in adoration this morning, and I met a young girl there, and the Lord just told me that to, to pray with her, and I did. And the Lord showed me that she was studying for a test and that she was planning on taking a very important test that was going to, to change the course of her life. And so I went over and I asked her, I told her, you know, why I wanted to pray with her, and I asked her, I said, are you studying for a test? And she said, yes, I'm taking the bar exam tomorrow. 
So I'd ask all of our listeners to do, just do a solid for me. Would you please pray for this young woman who will be taking the bar exam tomorrow, that the Holy Spirit just fill her with his peace? Because I can tell you from example, the peace, you need the peace and the relaxation that she just answer all of the questions perfectly and that she receive a passing score in Jesus's name. Amen. And we're going to go into our first break. And uh, when we come back from that break, we are going to welcome Dr. Michael New to the program. I'm Loretta Freilich, filling in for Father Anthony on Winds of Change on the new EWTN Catholic Radio Voice for Chicagoland, WSFI Catholic Radio on AM 750 WNDZ and on 88.5 FM WFSI. St. Stanislaus Koska Academy. St. Stan's is an exceptional private elementary school in Chicago, serving preschool, age three and four, pre-kindergarten, kindergarten, and first grades. We incorporate Catholic values and rigorous academic social-emotional learning, Chinese, Spanish, STEM, and more, providing our students with leadership and life skills to transform our world. St. Stanislaus Koska Academy is conveniently located one block north of Division on Noble, just off the Kennedy Expressway. To schedule your tour, visit ststanschicago.org. ststanschicago.org. I'm Loretta Freilich, Winds of Change guest host, and you are listening to the Winds of Change. Sometimes it's tough to hear winds of change over the air. What with tall buildings, power lines, and other static. Now you can hear winds of change anywhere, anytime, or on any device. When winds of change is on the air Monday through Friday, noon to one, go to ststandschurch.org. Scroll down to the Winds of Change tile and click on the Listen Live button or visit Winds of Change Facebook page to see the Listen Live link. Welcome back, listeners. This is Loretta Freilich, and it is now my privilege to introduce Dr. Michael New to our listeners. And Dr. New, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Oh, I much appreciate you. Believe me. Um, I know that you are an assistant professor at the Catholic University of America and an associate scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute. You are a Phi Beta Kappa graduate from Dartmouth College and received a master's degree in statistics and a doctorate in political science from Stanford University. You research and write about the social science of sanctity of life issues. You give presentations on both the positive impact of pro-life uh, laws and the gains in public support for the pro-life position. You're a frequent blogger on National Review's online corner, and you have a blog post on NRO, correct? Yep. In the what universe would you and I ever be having a conversation <laughs> I can tell you, you are one smart cookie. <laughs> well, you know what I always say? There's, a, there's like a dozen people out there uh, in the pro-life movement, uh, and we all hang out together. So, you know, we're all we're all friends, and, uh, yes. you know, I always enjoy the chance to have conversations and be on the radio. So uh, glad you have me on today. Well, believe me, uh, we, you know, <laughs> chatted back and forth on uh, email or text, but you're part of the team at this point. You've been such a frequent guest. We are blessed that you enjoy the radio, and we're blessed that you enjoy it with us. So tell no, it's us. It's a privilege and honor that uh, you and Mary do a great job with the show, and uh, always happy to be on. Well, great. Now, you are excited about some new data. Can you tell us what's going on in that youth risk yeah, behavior sure. survey? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, Basically, every couple of years, the Center for Disease Control uh, does a study of high school students. Okay. And uh, they ask about a variety of topics, uh, you know, drug use, alcohol use, um, you know, other behaviors that might be deemed risky. Uh, they always ask about teen sexual activity. And there's actually some very positive trends. Uh, their new data from 2021 just came out uh, a little bit more than about a week ago. And uh, they found that there's been a consistent long-term decline 
in teen sexual activity. That when you uh, look at the, the survey high school students, they found that the percentage of high school students who ever had sex fell by 17 percentage points. The percentage who are currently sexually active fell by 13 percentage points. And the number who had reported having four or more sexual partners fell by nine percentage points. So uh, we see very strong, durable, long-term declines in teen sexual activity. Uh, we've seen these declines kind of since uh, the very early 1990s, and I just think that's important. Um, you know, we've seen abortion numbers go down uh, dramatically uh, for all demographic groups, but we've really seen the biggest decline among teenagers, uh, that teen abortion rates have fallen by like 70%, wow. um, you know, I think since the 90s. And yeah, absolutely, it's been a big, big public policy success story that does not get a lot of attention. And typically, when you do, when it, sadly, when it does get attention, uh, usually the, um, the you know the commentators uh, mention contraception use. And it is true that you know sexually active teens are more likely to use contraception now than they were years ago, but um, you know the good news is that teen sex activity is going down. And uh, that's playing a big role as well. And that doesn't really get the attention I think it deserves. Absolutely. Now tell me, what do you attribute this drop to? And it's not a, it's not a small drop. This is pretty significant. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about in 10 years' time, a, you know, a decline in the percentage of teens ever having sex for at least high school students fell from, I mean, 47% to 30%. And this has been going on for you know a long time. I mean, this decline, you know, the numbers peaked in the early '90s, and there's been a decline ever ever since. Um, I think there has been more kind of emphasis on just chastity and abstinence. You know, I think that uh, you know that's been emphasized a lot of sex education curricula. Uh, I think that that's certainly playing a role. Uh, I also think that teenagers today tend to be a little bit different than teenagers from you know 30 or 40 years ago in the sense they just don't do kind of adult sorts of activities. Right. Uh, they're less likely to have a driver's license. Yes. They're less likely to work for pay, and they're also probably less likely to have like pursue a serious relationship. I think they kind of realize that marriage is going to be years and years in the future, and they just don't invest the time, effort, or energy into relationships with the opposite sex that maybe my generation or other generations did. Uh, that's a possibility. Another possibility, and this isn't good news, but I mean, I think I have to be honest, part of it may be just pornography. Uh, you know, people, yes. some you know, teenagers may be substituting, you know, pornography, you know, for real and personal relationships. So I should add that, you know, these declines in sexual activity started before, you know, internet browsers. I mean, mm-hmm. declines started in the early 90s. You know, internet browsers didn't really, um, you know, take off until uh, the mid-1990s. Um, so, uh, again, I don't think that it, pornography is the only reason, but I do think it may be a reason. Okay. But those are certain things that, um, you know, I would be inclined to think about. And, you know, you indicated that it does it, this drop. I mean, 70%, a 70% drop? Am I hearing you correctly? That's the 70% drop in the abortion rate. And the abortion uh, rate. For teenagers. Okay. Now, you're saying that this new area, this new data on the decline in teen sexual activity doesn't get a lot of attention. Why do you think not? Um, Generally speaking, again, I mean, you know, the other side has a narrative. Sure. And our opponents, if abortion numbers are going down, they always like to, they never like to talk about pro-life laws. They always like to talk about contraception. Uh, it's the one thing our opponents, you know, like to talk about a lot, and they argue if we just funded contraception programs and made contraception more available, you know, that would be the best way to get abortion numbers down. I don't think the data bears that out. Many programs to either promote or encourage or subsidize contraceptives uh, are either ineffective at best or counterproductive at worst. So I don't really think there's a lot of empirical evidence, but it's the narrative the other side likes. And just in general, anytime there's any kind of quote-unquote conservative public policy victory, it just doesn't typically get much attention. You know, the media just says, look the other way. I mean, right. one thing is, you've, you know, on the show and on, on other, you know, Catholic radio shows, one thing I always, you know, tell listeners about is that, you know, even before Dobbs, pro-labor succeeded in cutting the U.S. abortion rate by more than 50%. We cut the abortion rate by more than half since 1980. And outside a handful of analysts who really, um, you know, 
study this issue and pay close attention to it, that gets very little attention. So, uh, you know, anytime, again, there's any policy shift that's, you know, either shows that conservative public policies are having an impact or is just a shift in a more, you know, right of center direction, it just gets ignored. Mm-hmm. And would young people, uh, do you see more young people, I know you're a big proponent and you are somebody who who prays outside the abortuary in Washington. Do you see a drop in the young people that are coming to that abortuary? Um, you know, that, that's interesting. I mean, I don't see a tremendous amount of, you know, teenagers coming in. Okay. Um, obviously, you know, what I see in Washington, D.C. may not be representative of the rest of the country, you know, but I have, you know, sidewalk consult in Alabama. I've spent time in front of abortion facilities in Michigan and in Florida. And, um, yeah, I generally don't see, you know, a lot of teenagers, you know. Mm-hmm. Most of the women I see look like they're in their 20s usually. Um, I don't see, you know, a lot a lot of minors, you know, coming, you know, in and out of the clinic. So, um, you know, again, I do think, again, there has been declines in, in teen sexual activity. Teen pregnancy rates have fallen by a lot. And, um, you know, teen abortion rates are falling by a lot. And, again, I think an important reason why is because, again, teen sexual activity is declining. Wow. Now, you indicated also that, that there was a new Gallup poll on the sanctity of life issues. Yep. Can you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, this poll that? got a lot of attention. Sure, this poll got a lot of attention, which is unfortunate because it's not a very good poll. Um, basically, it said there were, according to this Gallup poll, there was a gain of 16 percentage points in the percentage of people who said they're dissatisfied with you know, the United States policy regarding abortion. So there's an increase in dissatisfaction regarding abortion <laughs> policy. And this is being kind of spun to make it look like there's been a big gain in support for legal abortion. Mm-hmm. But that's really not the case. If you look at other polls that look at like actual like issues that people might care about, opinions have been, opinions have been very stable. Uh, you know, Knights of Columbus does a poll every January they commission through Marist, which is a professional, reputable polling organization. Uh, this Marist poll uh, said there was, a, since June 2022, a two-percentage point gain in the percentage of people who identify as pro-life. Since January 2022, a six-percentage point gain in the percentage who opposed taxpayer funding for abortion. So we look at, like, policy questions. You know, abortion attitudes haven't really changed all that that much. So um, that's kind of one thing wrong with this poll. The second thing that was wrong with this poll was it looked at national abortion policy. Well, post Dobbs, we really don't really have a national abortion policy. We have state abortion policies. And I would argue that people are probably happier now with their state policy than they were, you know, a year or so ago. Mm-hmm. Why? Because conservatives, you know, especially conservative states, can now protect preborn children. Mm-hmm. That was not the case. You know, uh, in most cases, um, you know, February of 2022. So I think this poll was just misleading. Uh, got a lot of attention. It's too bad. I do my best to set the record straight. You know, people should read and circulate my National Review Online blog post. But yeah, just a poll that wasn't very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. And what else would you say came out of this Gallup poll that is important for pro-lifers to pay attention to? Well, I just think that, uh, you know, in general, there's really not much of this poll that I would really, you know, <laughs> tell pro-lifers to pay attention to. Um, okay. You know, again, it's unfortunate. Uh, Gallup does some good polling on this issue, uh-huh. but they, you know, there's room for improvement. One of my just frustrations with Gallup and a lot of other professional pollsters is that they don't ask about incremental pro-life laws all that often. You know, a lot of times they like to ask the pro-life, pro-choice question, you know, because mm-hmm. po- both sides pull out evenly. Before the reversal of Roe v. Wade, they asked, do you support Roe v. Wade? That was a terrible polling question. Mm-hmm. Most people don't really know what Roe v. Wade actually did. Most people don't really know that Roe v. Wade effectively legalized abortion on demand for all nine months in all 50 states. Mm-hmm. So that was never a good question. Uh, better questions are things like, do you support you know, tax-free funding for abortion? Do you support pro-life parental involvement laws? Do you think there should be limits on third-trimester abortion? So should there be limits on second-trimester abortion? Mm-hmm. And then Gallup does ask these things from time to time, but not nearly as often as the other questions I've mentioned. So that's just a, a real frustration, not only with Gallup, but with other kind of professional pollsters that do ask about abortion. Now, Michael, let me ask you, how did you get involved 
in statistics. And how did you get involved in analyzing pro-life statistics? That's a very good question. You know, I was a graduate student at Stanford. I got my PhD there in political science. My dissertation did not have anything to do with abortion. (laughs) It had to do with, like, state budget rules and state fiscal policy. But I had a good background in, like, state politics. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was always, you know, pro-life. I was involved in the pro-life groups as an undergrad at Dartmouth and as a grad student at Stanford. And uh, after um, I left Stanford, I moved to Boston. And, uh, you know, I had a research job at Harvard, and I taught adjunct at uh, University of Massachusetts, Boston. And after I arrived, you know, I had this idea to do a study uh, kind of on the impact of pro-life laws, that uh, I saw there was a lot of uh, state abortion data that the Center for Disease Control released. Uh, I didn't see a lot of political scientists really working on, you know, abortion or sanctity of life issues. So I thought it would be a good idea to do a study, you know, that looked at, you know, state pro-life laws. And do they work? I mean, just sometimes, just because you're trying to pass a good law, doesn't mean the law is actually, you know, stopping abortions or protecting pre-born children. So my plan was to have a study come out by January of 2003. I wanted something out by the 30th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And I remember getting some data together, getting some preliminary results. I wasn't really plugged in. I emailed some people. I didn't get much of a response. And, uh, you know, January 2003 came and went. But I was at Harvard. And the Kennedy School of Government there uh, has a, a visiting scholar program. And they would bring people in uh, just to spend a semester at the county school, give some presentations, and run some seminars. And spring of 2003, the visit, one of the visiting fellows was a guy named Stuart Butler. And Stuart Butler was the vice president of domestic policy at the Heritage Foundation. Mm-hmm. So uh, he did a seminar on health care policy, uh, which I attended. And I got to know him a little bit, and uh, we went out to lunch, and I asked him if Heritage would be interested in publishing my study on the impact of pro-life laws. And he was interested, but this time Heritage did not do much on social issues. Mm-hmm. Heritage focused on kind of economics and foreign policy. So there was some skepticism internally. Uh, so I sent them what I had. And they actually had, a, over the summer, an intern reconstruct my entire data set from scratch. Mm-hmm. I was looking at data from almost all 50 states over 20 years, holding constant a variety of demographic and economic factors. It was, it was a big data set. And this intern, you know, reconstructed it, found a couple of very minor errors, but nothing that really changed my results, and said, you know, this is good. The numbers add up. So... It took a while, but on the day of the March for Life in 2004, the Heritage Foundation you know, releases my study, and it showed that pro-life laws do a positive impact, mm-hmm. that if your state Medicaid program quits covering abortion, abortion numbers go down. If you pass a pro-life parental involvement law, minor abortion rates go down. You pass an informed consent law, give pregnant women some information about alternatives, abortion numbers go down. And it was all, you know, I think pretty well done statistically and pretty, pretty rigorous, and uh you know, I kind of thought, this is nice. Uh, the pro-life movement's going to come by, uh, pat me on my head, tell me what a great guy I am, and that's going to be about it. Uh, no, it really caught fire. Uh, people are very interested in the study, interested in the results. I'm getting a lot of invitations to write, invitations to speak. And then kind of a light bulb kind of went off in my head that, Michael, the pro-life movement doesn't really have its own in-house social scientists. You know, they have people doing public health. There's all kinds of, you know, pro-life lawyers. You have theologians. You have philosophers. But you really, there's nobody really doing the social science. So, Michael, this is what you were kind of trained for your whole life. Do it. So I just sort of threw this over my shoulder, and it became kind of a, a college industry for me. And I do my own research on pro-life laws. You know, mm-hmm. I do, um, you know, write about other people's research. You know, I'm happy to analyze polls. You know, again, as I said before, that, you know, I do a lot of writing on things like abortion trends, pro-life laws, contraception programs, public opinion. You know, I'm lots of fun at cocktail parties. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how it all started. Well, that is so interesting. And when we come back from our next break, Michael, if you can share with us, you know, how it is you got involved in the pro-life movement. Because while you've created this amazing cottage industry, you explain it so well, and you really give ammunition to those of us that need the help in explaining the, you know, that life, choose life. So I'm Loretta Freilich on Winds of Change on the new EWTN Catholic Radio Voice for Chicagoland, WSFI Catholic Radio. 
on AM 750 WNDZ and on 88.5 FM WFSI. We'll be right back. How long has it been since you have been to church? Busy schedule? Work? Or just lost interest? To be Catholic is not just merely attending Mass as just another weekend activity to be checked off the to-do list. Participation in the Sacred Liturgy gives you the opportunity to be intimately connected to Christ through the Holy Eucharist. You can also cleanse yourself of sin through the Sacrament of Reconciliation as a baptized Catholic. Come before the iconic monstrance to be in Christ's presence in the sacred silence of the Sanctuary of the Divine Mercy. St. Stanislaus Koska Church is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. St. Stan's is just off the Kennedy, two blocks north of Division on Noble. Come back to Christ through the Sacred Liturgy and His gift of the sacraments at St. Stan's. We are the students of St. Stan La Costa Academy, and you're listening to the Winds of Change. St. Stanislaus Koska Academy. St. Stan's is an exceptional private elementary school in Chicago, serving preschool, age three and four, pre-kindergarten, kindergarten, and first grades. We incorporate Catholic values and rigorous academic social-emotional learning, Chinese, Spanish, STEM, and more, providing our students with leadership and life skills to transform our world. St. Stanislaus Koska Academy is conveniently located one block north of Division on Noble, just off the Kennedy Expressway. To schedule your tour, visit ststanschicago.org. ststanschicago.org. I'm Loretta Freilich on Winds of Change, and we are talking to Dr. Michael New, the pro-life statistician. I can barely even say the word. And, you know, Michael, how is it you got involved in pro-life? That's also a good question and a, and a good story. I don't think story. we've ever asked so, you um, that. I don't think we, the times you've been on, I don't think we've ever asked you that. And here you're talking about sidewalk counseling in Alabama, Michigan, Florida, and you've taken on the statistics of the abortion industry, and it's really, you, you just are so amazing in the way in which you are able to bring it down where even I can understand them. So how did you get involved? It's, it's interesting. I mean, I'm a cradle Catholic. You know, mm-hmm. I went to a Catholic grade school mm-hmm. and a Catholic high school. Uh, but honestly, you know, when I was in high school, I was like a lot of other people. I was scrambling around, trying to get good grades, involved in all kinds of activities, trying to get myself into a good, good college. Mm-hmm. You know, abortion was just not on the radar screen for me as a high school student or as a teenager. Sure. I do remember uh, when I was in junior year of uh, high school, I was in a morality class, and I do remember watching the silent screen. And uh, for wow. listeners who may not be familiar, it was a very famous video that came out in the mid-1980s. Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who ran probably the largest abortion facility in New York City, became pro-life. And he did this video of an ultrasound of an unborn child uh, being aborted. And if you've never seen it, it's you know, very graphic, it's very moving. Yes. Uh, and I remember you know, watching it, ever just being kind of disgusted by this. Uh, but, um, you know, at the time, it just seemed to me this is a another lousy thing in a world full of lousy things, and it didn't really motivate me to kind of get get active. So um, I go to college, and for undergrad, I went to Dartmouth College uh, in New Hampshire, and uh, to be honest, I did not have a great freshman year. I kind of uh, bossed off the walls a bit and had trouble finding kind of a social life I was happy with, but the one thing I did enjoy about Dartmouth were the right-of-center political groups that I got involved with. I thought that was one spot where, you know, I was enjoying people's company and making some contribution to, to campus life. So I was involved with some conservative political groups. And at some point freshman year, you know, I would have been comfortable identifying as pro-life. Uh, but to me, it was just one of, you know, many issues. Um, you know, it was like term limits or cutting the capital gains tax. So <laughs> sophomore year rolls around. And, uh, I wish I could remember what happened, but I remember just in the fall, I was sitting at Mass, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, this is a really important issue. You know, this is life or death. This is actually a lot more important than term limits for cutting the capital gains tax. And I just felt, you know, just the sense of the importance of this issue. But I really felt I should do something. Well, I'm an 18, 19-year-old student. What do I do? Uh, Maybe I could start a campus group. So I talked to my priest, and 
I told him I wanted to start a pro-life group, and he told me, Michael, one of the students already worked on it. And this guy was named Paul uh, DeGaetano. And he goes, why don't you email Paul? And I emailed Paul, and, uh, you know, he was in the process of getting a group started. And, uh, you know, we launched a, a campus pro-life group. And this was, uh, you know, mid-1990s, 94, yeah, at Dartmouth. <laughs> okay. And uh, this is, you know, to be honest, you know, one thing that, you know, our one kind of missed opportunity for pro-lifers is that we haven't always invested as much as we probably should have in youth outreach. Yes. Uh, that this is before students for life really got off the ground. Uh, so basically, we were just kind of left to our own devices. You know, we wrote letters to the editor, the campus paper. You know, we some some of our members would like to write op-eds. You know, we brought some speakers in. Um, you know, I do remember there was a group of like northeastern schools that had pretty good Ivy League or pretty good pro-life groups, and we were called the. Ivy League Coalition for Life. So there were strong groups at Dartmouth, Wellesley, Princeton, and Fairfield University in Connecticut. And we'd each take turns kind of hosting a, a conference. And I remember we agreed to host the conference uh, spring of 1997, which is my senior year. And it was really good. Uh, one of the nice things about Dartmouth is that it's in New Hampshire, and that means there's an endless parade of presidential candidates who want to come to your school. So the keynote speaker at our conference was uh, Alan Keyes. Uh, came oh, wow. and gave a really sure. great talk. Yes. Uh, it was also really interesting because the weekend of the conference, this was all planned, but the weekend of that conference was also the uh, prospective weekend for African-American students. You know, that when uh, African-American students get admitted to Dartmouth, there is a kind of a separate weekend for them to uh, come to campus and visit. Uh, some of these prospective students uh, got wind of our talk, and they showed up in the auditorium. So there was actually a, uh, a pretty good turnout that, uh, that morning uh, to, hear, uh, to hear Alan Keyes. So that went very well. And uh, I also, another person who your listeners might know about is a woman named uh, Olivia Gans. Uh, Olivia now directs uh, Virginia Society for Human Life, the pro-life group in Virginia. At the time, she ran a group called American Victims of Abortion. Uh, she's post-abortive, has a very powerful testimony. And I got to know her a little bit. And, uh, you know, when I was in Washington, D.C. Uh, that summer, she got me into some of the intern dinners for the interns at National Right to Life. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, a productive uh, connection I made. So, yeah, and I was, again, active at Dartmouth, uh, Stanford. You know, I obviously am a grad student, uh, a little bit busier. Uh, but still stayed active, you know. Again, the campus pro-life group brought speakers in. I brought, again, Olivia Gans to Stanford, you know, when I was a grad student there. One thing I was very proud of during my time at Stanford is that not only did I bring Olivia to campus for a pro-life talk, I actually convinced the Women's Center on campus to host a discussion with her. Uh, which I thought was a nice coup. Wow. There was a director of the Campus Women's Center who, you know, was very liberal, uh, supported legal abortion, sure. but she was open-minded. And she thought that Olivia had a very interesting testimony, which she did. And, um, yeah, I do you remember, you know, being in the Women's Center. You talking. You know, it was interesting. Um, you know, I remember it was interesting. I, remember I went to Stanford, yes. and I remember, I forget exactly what year, but it was pretty early in my time there. The Campus Women's Center did a quick event, and it featured Kate Michaelman, who at the time was yes. the president of NARAL, National Abortion Rights Action League. Mm -hmm. And it was a quick drive-by thing. She came in. She gave a talk. She took some questions. She vanished. And I was either very courageous um, or very unwise, perhaps. I remember just marching into the Women's Center, like, right afterwards, talking to the director, and said, look, you just brought a speaker who supports legal abortion. Uh, why don't you bring a pro-life speaker in? And I thought she'd just laugh at me or kick me out of the office. But she says, you know what? I think that's a really good idea, actually. And I, I've been thinking about this. And how about this sound? How about we do a panel of men talking about what they think about abortion? I'm like, this is a terrible idea. You know, campus women don't want to have young men, you know, tell them what to do or how to behave. But I had a better idea, which was, again, my good friend Olivia, who is post-abortive and has a great testimony. And, uh, yeah, the Women's Center director thought that was kind of interesting. So, yep, the, uh, we got her to the Women's Center for a discussion, and it was just really interesting. that People like, wanted to like, fight with her, but like, they couldn't. They were like, you make so much sense, mm -hmm. but I can't agree with you. <laughs> You're making so much sense. <laughs> oh, my gosh, that's too funny. Well, you are amazing, Michael, and a super, you must be a super fast talker if you are able to pull these events off. And how then did well, you... Well, you know, I, you know, sometimes you just got to knock on the door, you know. Yeah, um, true. You know, sometimes you just have to extend it all a branch, you know, I've been in, you know, 
frankly, liberal academic circles for a lot of my life. And, yeah, it's, it's not easy. Sometimes no, people are not receptive. You know, sometimes people are just hostile. But you know yes. what? Somebody's got to at least try. He tries to try, try to build a bridge. You know, it never hurts. Yes. You know, uh, sometimes it's easy to kind of be in the echo chamber where we're only communicating to friends and like-minded people. Uh, but sometimes you have to reach out and engage others. And, you know, if you can put a pro-life speaker in front of an audience that might not be pro-life, you know, that's a good thing. You may make them, you know, right. give it a second thought or at least see the merit we have to say, even if they don't necessarily agree. Right. Now, t- you also um, were sharing with me um, about a pending court decision that's going to impact the legality of chemical abortion drugs? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, that's a court decision. We will probably hear something around... Um, you know, it's going to be a long process overall, but there is kind of a lawsuit uh, filed about the legality of chemical abortion drugs that was filed uh, in a court near Austin, Texas. And um, there were a lot of concerns about chemical abortion drugs when they were first legalized. What's uh, the, the issue chemical abortion in this one, pill, Michael? What's the issue in this case? I mean, there was just... There was just questions about the process that was originally went through. I mean, since chemical abortion drugs have been made legal, uh, we've more data about the risks. You know, we okay. know that uh, chemical abortion drugs have four times higher complication rate uh, than surgical abortions. There's also, I think, legal questions about whether these chemical abortion drugs can be sent through the mail. Uh, also, since they've been legalized, the FDA has done certain things to make them easier to access. Uh, I mean, they've allowed pharmacies, or they're going to allow pharmacies to dispense them. Uh, they're allowing women to obtain them without an in-person medical exam. They're allowing women to obtain them kind of later gestation. Sure. And again, the rationales for this have not been necessarily all that strong. So again, the, when it was first legalized in 2000, it was very politicized. The Clinton administration really rushed this through. Right. Uh, I think there's a good argument they didn't follow proper protocol. And uh, right now, yeah, you're seeing a lawsuit. You know, we have the evidence of, you know, their harms and their risks. You know, there have been, I think, 24 women who've died because of chemical abortion drugs since 2000. So, uh, again, our chances are if we do get a good ruling, it will be appealed. Uh, but I think that, uh, again, we need to push back on this. Uh, the other side is trying to circumvent pro-life laws by trying to mail these chemical abortion drugs through the mail. And, again, uh, they're obviously failed unborn children, but they do pose some real health risks to women as, as well. And what do you recall the name of this case? I don't remember the exact name of, of the case oh. off the top of my head. Oh, okay. Well, um, and who is pushing back on the case? Are you aware of that? Well, the, you know, I mean, the group that's kind of taking up the, the lawsuit uh, is Alliance Defending Freedom, you know, which is a very yes. fine uh, conservative, you know, nonprofit law firm here in D.C. They have lots of lawyers. They uh, do a lot of very good you know, litigation. So uh, Alliance Defending Freedom is taking up the case, and they're litigating against the, the Biden administration, FDA. Okay. And what do you see coming on the horizon other than the legality of chemical abortion drugs? Well, I, I see, um, you know, a, a lot. Um, you know, I think that obviously the Dobbs decision uh, has given us some unique opportunities. You know, I think that there is some progress being made in South Carolina. Uh, there are pro-life bills that are strong, that are being considered. I think they have to find language that everybody likes. But I think South Carolina is going to be the next state to either ban abortion or at least really try to do something to protect pre-born children. There's positive developments in, in Utah uh, that I'm hearing about. So, uh, again, I think we're going to have to keep pushing, you know, those states where we can, you know, pass good laws. I think in other parts of the country, you know, we just have to maintain our educational efforts and our service efforts, you know, um, and even in states passing pro-life laws, you know, laws that do a lot of good, but they're not magical. You know, women can cross state boundaries and yes. get abortions in other states. We need to make sure we have good services in place that public, you know, that pregnancy help centers are, you know, available and able to assist women, and they should know there's just a better option at home instead of traveling hundreds of miles to, to go to an abortion clinic. Well, and plus, the people that are, the companies that are paying for that, I, I mean, women wake up. They are paying you an airline ticket and, like, four days off to go to another state to get your abortion. What about health care? What about adding on to health care for you and your unborn child? Adding on to help paying the maternity leave, paying for the the good health care for your child. You know, these companies act like they're, you know, just really heroes in the life 
industry or reproductive industry is. I hate that word when it's used for abortion, but they're acting like they're heroes. And instead, they're saving their companies lots of bucks. And you are being mm. had if you are willing to settle for the price of a plane ticket and a couple days off so you can go get your abortion. I, I don't understand. Mm. But anyway, mm. what about a national... Um, you know, they talk about the about Congress enacting or codifying Roe v. Wade. Do you see that coming? Mm. Yeah, I think that probably the you know Senate may take that up. Uh, it's not going to happen. I mean, thankfully, Republicans control majority in the House, and I think anything the Senate might do to try to you know make abortion policy more permissive, uh, they'll stop. So I think at the federal level, you know, it's going to be a stalemate. Republicans control the House, Democrats control the Senate. Sadly, Democrats control the presidency, uh, but you know, we were working out for us. I mean, uh, Republicans have you know raised the issue. You know, they did. Uh, they are trying to get a bill put in place. You know, that would uh, protect preborn children. You know, after botched abortions. Right. Uh, and sadly, you know, uh, almost with a couple exceptions, almost no Democrats voted in favor of that bill. You'd think that you know we should agree that children should be born after yes. children are born, they should be protected. But apparently, Absolutely. you have a lot of people in the Democrat Party who just don't think that way. So, um, you know, there are, and there's also probably going to be a, a vote sometime. I don't know, can't say exactly when, but we do hear that there's going to be at least a legislation being pushed to stop taxpayer funding of abortion and make that kind of permanent. Um, you know, I think that's a strong issue. Again, it probably is not going to get through the Senate, but that's nothing the House Republicans are working on. We have to kind of fight for the Hyde Amendment like we always do. Yes. I mean, uh, the Biden administration uh, will probably has released a budget uh, that does not include Hyde. Uh, that is a real departure from precedent. Um, you know, of the eight budgets that President Clinton proposed, seven include the Hyde Amendment. Of the eight budgets that President Obama proposed, all eight include the Hyde Amendment. So, President Biden, this is a real departure from precedent, even for a Democratic president. So it's pretty clear that Joe Biden not only thinks abortion should be legal, he thinks it should be paid for with your tax dollars and my tax dollars. Right. So that's uh, you know something Republicans have to push back on. Thankfully, they've done a good job the past couple of years. I think we'll prevail again, but it's something we'll have to keep an eye on. Well, God bless you, Michael. You make statistics fun. And you make them understandable. And we are so grateful that you are a team member for the show. Uh, I want to thank you for sharing all of this incredible information. And you give us hope in the life issue. Thank you for being on today's program. We are blessed. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you all. And we are going to our last break. And when we come back, we'll have the final word. Here's some good news. We are pleased to announce that St. Stanislaus Koska is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, in answer to our Blessed Mother's call to open the doors. The Blessed Sacrament will again be exposed all day, every day, except when Masses or other services are being held. You are invited to come and pray anytime, day or night, for your safety. We ask that you practice social distancing and wear a mask. Hand sanitizer is available, and St. Stan's has increased cleaning and sanitizing of the church. And a security person will be on site. More information can be found at ststanschurch.org. That's ststanschurch.org. St. Stanislaus Koska is located two blocks north of Division on Noble, just off the Kennedy Expressway. I'm Mary Fiorito, Winds of Change guest host, and you are listening to the Winds of Change. Sometimes it's tough to hear winds of change over the air. What with tall buildings, power lines, and other static. Now you can hear winds of change anywhere, anytime, or on any device. When Winds of Change is on the air, Monday through Friday, noon to one, go to ststandschurch.org. Scroll down to the Winds of Change tile and click on the Listen Live button or visit Winds of Change Facebook page to see the Listen Live link. Welcome back, listeners. I'm Loretta Freilich, and I'm here on Winds of Change. And we had a great guest today with Dr. Michael New to talk to talk statistics and the way in which the pro-life movement is moving. And some really good news with the new data on the decline in teen sexual activity. 
Um, I just want to end today's show uh, with a reminder that this weekend, uh, the Charismatic Renewal celebrated its 56th anniversary. For those of you familiar with the renewal, it is the weekend that some students gathered for a retreat. They were Catholics. They were students at Duquesne University, but they felt they didn't know their faith enough. And so they asked uh, a moderator in their adult spirituality if they could have a retreat. And they went to a place in Gibsonia, Pennsylvania, to a retreat house called the Ark and the Dove. And at the Ark and the Dove, the Holy Spirit came over these young men and women, these young students, and just filled them with the Holy Spirit and a love for the Lord and a desire to know Him better, it filled them with all the gifts of the Holy Spirit and a hunger for God. And um, what's really exciting as the uh, people gather to celebrate this anniversary in Asbury uh, University in Kentucky, there is revival going on. And this is, while it's not a Catholic university, it has been filled with students uh, for nearly two weeks um, that are just nonstop praising the Lord and giving God glory for all that he has blessed them with. And the beauty of this revival, uh, it's a movement of God. Tucker Carlson from Fox News wanted to come and broadcast from there, and the university asked him not to come. They said, this is not an event. It is a movement of God. What's so beautiful is true repentance has broken out in this place where the students themselves and those that are attending are crying out for repentance from God. So not just the gang, Lord, we're so sorry about the gang killings on the South Side. No, they're crying out for repentance. Lord, I am so sorry for the ways in which I have murdered somebody with my tongue. So it is personal repentance that is moving God's heart for these students. It has spread to multiple campuses, and it has just been going on nonstop. So I really encourage all of our listeners to check out the Asbury Revival and um, look and see where it has spread. Look to see where it's, it's spread to other campuses. And I just really ask your prayers for these beautiful young men and women because God has put something on their heart now. God has marked them even more closely with his Holy Spirit. And we just want to pray that these young people, that the fervor does not die out, that they continue to fill out their purpose and plan that only God can place in their hearts. I also, um, you know, we have some sad news. Los Angeles Bishop David O'Connell, he uh, was found shot to death in his home in Los Angeles, in the area in Los Angeles. We want to ask your prayers for his family and his people. He was a much-beloved bishop and... There is tremendous sadness, and we pray, too, for eternal rest for uh, Bishop David O'Connell. Additionally, don't give up on our Bishop Alvarez in Nicaragua. Pray for Daniel Ortega's heart, President Daniel Ortega's heart, to be moved, that the Lord would just, just put up a spirit of repentance in his heart and that he would free the bishop and all the other priests he's holding hostage in Nicaragua. And finally, we pray again still for our beloved Cardinal Zen and ask that the Lord come upon him and that he be released from the hospital and doing well. Listeners, it's been my privilege to have these airways today. I look forward to talking to you next Monday. Come and join us on Winds of Change. What's there to say when the world makes no sense? Do we search deeper truths or sit on the fence? Can you see? Can you see? Can you see the winds have changed? 
meaningless thought The shell appears strong But the inside is right It's time to be stirred The time is now The winds have changed Read the signs No time to hide